Chapter One of The Rain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Rain Girl, a Romance of Today by Herbert Jenkins. Dedication to the Rain Girl. You who know will understand. You who see on either hand tragedies that seem to say, Light a love and lack a day. Spring but tarries for an hour, Summer sheds her golden shower, Then autumn with her amber horn Gathers all ere winter's born. You who know will understand, You who see on either hand Tragedies that seem to say, Light a love and lack a day. Chapter 1 The Road to Nowhere Nature discourages eccentricity. The ridiculous words rang in Richard Beresford's ears as he stalked resolutely along the rain-soaked high road. They seemed to keep time with the crunch of his boots upon the wet gravel. The wind picked them up and, with a spatter of rain, flung them full in his face. The pack on his back caught the last word and thumped it into his shoulders. Nature discourages eccentricity. Where he had read the absurd phrase he could not remember probably in some insignificant magazine article upon popular science. That, however, was no excuse for remembering it, and upon this of all days. It had not even the virtue of being epigrammatical. It was just a dull, stupid, catch-penny phrase of some silly ass desirous of catching the editorial eye. As he plodded on through the rain, he strove to confute and annihilate the wretched thing, to crush it by the heavy artillery of reason. Nature herself was eccentric, he told himself. Had she not once, at least, sent snow on Derby Day? Did she not ruin with frost her own crops? Nature discourages eccentricity, crunched his boots. Eccentricity, pounded his pack. Tricity, shrieked the wind gleefully. Confounded! He would think of other things, of the life before him, of the good pals who had gone west, of books and pictures, of love and tobacco, of romance and wandering, of all that made life worthwhile. It was absurd to be hypnotized by a phrase. No. The moment his thoughts were left to themselves, they returned precipitately to the little Grub Street absurdity. It clung to him like a pursuing fury, this nonsensical, illogical, and peculiarly irritating phrase. Nature discourages eccentricity. He strove to recall all the eccentricities of nature of which he had ever heard. Confute the accursed thing he would at all costs. It was by the way of fat women and five-legged sheep that he eventually stumbled across his own family. In spite of the rain and of his own detestably uncomfortable condition, he laughed aloud. Every relative he had was eccentric, yet heaven knew they had not lacked encouragement. From the other side of the hedge, a miserable-looking white horse gazed at him wonderingly. Truly these humans were strange beings to find matter for laughter on such a day. Yes, his relatives were eccentric enough to think him mad. There was Aunt Caroline, for instance, who rather prided herself upon being different from other people. Yet she had married a peer, was extremely wealthy, and as exclusive as a colony of Agapemones, no one could say that she had been discouraged. 
The thought of Caroline Lady Drewitt brought Beresford back to his present situation, and the cause of his struggling along a country road in the face of a southwesterly wind that threw the rain against his face in vicious little slaps on the most pitifully unspring-like first of May he ever remembered. Again, the day brought him back to his starting point, nature discourages eccentricity. In short, Lady Druid, the weather, and the phrase all seemed so mixed up and confused as to defy entire disentanglement. The weather could be dismissed in a few words. It was atrocious, depressing, English. Ahead stretched the rain-soddened high road, flanked on either side by glistening hatches, from which the water fell in solemn and reluctant drops. Heavy clouds swung their moody way across the sky, just clearing the treetops. Groups of miserable cattle huddled together under hedges, or beneath trees that gave no shelter from the pitiless rain. Here and there some despairing beast lay down in the open, as if refusing to continue the self-deception. The tree-trunks glistened like beavers, for the rain beat relentlessly through their thin foliage. In short, the world was wet to the skin, and Richard Beresford with the world. His thoughts drifted back to the little family dinner-party at Druid House, and the bombshell he had launched into its midst. It was his aunt's inquiry as to when he proposed returning to the foreign office that had been the cause of all the trouble. His simple statement that he had done with the foreign office and all its ways, and intended to go for a long walking tour, had been received with consternation. He smiled at the recollection of the scene. Lady Druid's anger, his cousin Lord Druid's lifting of his eyebrows, the snap in Edward Seymour's ferret-like little eyes, Mrs. Edward's look of frightened interrogation directed at Lady Druid, and her subsequent endeavour to mirror her aunt's disapproval. It was all so comical, so characteristic. He had found it impossible to explain what had led up to his decision. He could not tell Lady Druid and the Seymours that the trenches had revolutionised his ideas, that a sort of intellectual Bolshevism had taken possession of him, that he now took a more detached and impersonal view of life, that things which had mattered before were not the things which mattered now. They would not have understood. He could not explain that out there everything had taken on a new value and new standards had been set up, that in a flash the clock had been put back centuries. Food and life alone had mattered. A few yards away death had lain in wait to flick them out with a disdainful finger, and every man, some consciously, others instinctively, was asking himself the great riddle, why? Instead of endeavouring to explain all this, Beresford had contented himself by saying that the war had made a difference, had somehow changed him, made him restless. He had been purposely vague, remembering Lady Drewitt's habit of clutching at a phrase as a peg for her scorn and ridicule. He had been conscious of making out a very poor case for himself, and mentally he cursed his cousin, Lord Drewitt, for his silence. He, at least, must have understood. He had been through it all. Lady Drewitt listened with obvious impatience. At last she had broken out with, "'Richard, you're a fool!' The words had been wrapped out with conviction rather than acrimony. "'Logically, I suppose I am, Aunt Caroline,' he had replied, as he signalled to Druid to circulate the port in his direction. "'What are you going to live on?' Lady Druid demanded. 
you've no money of your own perhaps he proposes to borrow from you aunt lord drewitt had said as he lighted another cigarette lady drewitt ignored the remark but richard i don't understand mrs edward seymour had puckered up her pretty washed-out face where are you going to and what shall he do he wants to become a vagabond snapped lady drewitt tramping from town to town like those dreadful men we saw last week when motoring to peterborough i see but there was nothing in mrs edward's tone suggestive of enlightenment it's the war announced edward seymour a peevish-looking little man with no chin and a forehead that reached almost to the back of his neck who by virtue of a post at the ministry of munitions had escaped the comb of conscription lord drewitt screwed his glass into his eye and gazed at seymour with interest don't be a fool edward snapped lady drewitt and mrs edward seymour looked across at her husband disapproval in her eye it was hidden from none that the seymours were after the old bird's money as jimmy pentland put it it was he who had christened them the vultures a name that had stuck what do you propose to do when you've spent all your money lady drewitt had next demanded in all probability said lord drewitt he will get run in and come to us to bail him out personally i hate police courts i often wonder why they instruct magistrates in law at the expense of hygiene lady drewitt had looked across the table with a startled expression in her eyes it had suddenly dawned upon her that unpleasant consequences to herself might ensue from this rash determination on the part of her nephew to seek his future happiness amidst byways and hedges it seems to me began edward seymour in a thin protesting voice never mind what it seems to you said lady drewitt whereat edward seymour had collapsed screwing up his little features into an expression of pain mrs edward had caught him full in the centre of the left shin with a sharply pointed toe of her shoe at drewitt house mrs edward's feet were never still when her husband was within range lord drewitt had once suggested that he should wear shin guards mrs edward's methods of wireless telegraphy being notorious sometimes she missed her spouse as other guests knew to their cost once she had landed full on the tibia of a gouty colonial bishop whose language in a native dialect had earned for him the respect of every man present when later translated with adornments by one of the company if edward had spent days and nights in the trenches lord drewitt had said as with great intentness he peeled a walnut he would understand why richard shrinks from the foreign office it would be impossible beresford said to settle down again to the monotony of a life of ten till four after after the last four years unless of course you happen to be a fountain lord drewitt had interpolated without looking up from his walnut i said it was the war broke in edward seymour looking triumphantly across at his wife emboldened by the knowledge that his legs were tucked safely away beneath his chair and what do you propose to do lady drewitt had demanded with the air of one who knew she had propounded a conundrum to which there is no answer oh said beresford airily i shall just walk into the sun you see aunt caroline he said bending forward i've only got one life and 
and how many do you suppose i have lady drewitt had demanded scornfully snapping her jaws in a peculiarly unpleasant way she had i repeat aunt caroline he had proceeded imperturbably that i have only one life and rather than go back to the f o i prefer to seek nature in her impregnable fastnesses suggested lord drewitt looking across at his cousin with a smile impregnable fiddlesticks lady drewitt had cried derisively he will get his feet wet and die of bronchitis or pneumonia and we shall have to go down to the inquest said lord drewitt and lunch execrably at some local inn no richard you mustn't do it i cannot risk our aunt's digestion lady drewitt always discouraged the idea that life contained either sentiment or ideals to be intangible in conversation with her was impossible she admitted of no distinction between imagination and lying to her all extremes were foolish optimists and pessimists being equally culpable she pooh-poohed anything and everything that was not directly or indirectly connected with burke once she would have admitted l'almanac de gotha burke to her girlish eyes had always been the open sesame to happiness as for the seymours they were merely lady drewitt's echoes lord drewitt at once said they reminded him of st paul's definition of love as beresford smoked his own cigarettes and drank lady drewitt's excellent port he was conscious that there were a hundred and one reasons that he might have advanced to any one but his aunt it would have been foolish to tell her that within him had been awakened a spirit of romance and adventure that the wanderlust was upon him she would merely have said that he must see sir edmund tobbit her pet physician and have forbidden him to use german words in her presence and how do you propose to live whilst you are pursuing your ridiculous nature exposing yourself to all sorts of weather lady drewitt had next demanded well i've got nearly two hundred pounds beresford had replied and by the time i've sold my books and things i shall have fully another hundred you're going to sell everything gasped mrs edward seymour yes all but the clothes i wear and an extra suit i shall carry with me beresford had smilingly retorted enjoying the look of consternation upon his cousin's face when i leave london there will not remain in it a shilling's worth of my property richard you're a fool lady drewitt seemed to find comfort in the phrase your poor mother was a fool too she lady drewitt broke off suddenly and gazed searchingly at her nephew when did this ridiculous idea first take possession of you she had demanded with the air of a counsel for the prosecution about to make a great point i have been a vagabond all my life he had confessed with a smile i have never been really respectable you know lady drewitt's jaws had met with a snap lord drewitt gazed at her with interest neither he nor beresford had ever permitted themselves to be overawed by their aunt they were the only two relatives she possessed who were not ill at ease in her presence you're irish she continued relentlessly addressing beresford in a voice that savoured of accusation half irish beresford had corrected i remember now there was a marked solemnity in her voice a week before you were born your poor dear mother was greatly frightened by a tramp 
who had managed to get into the garden. Then, Lord Druid had said, Richard must not be blamed. Like Napoleon, he is clearly a man of destiny. But, said Edward Seymour, screwing up his face as was his wont when asking a question, I don't see why being in the trenches should make Richard want to become a tramp. You wouldn't, my dear Teddy, Lord Druid had said softly. You see, it's an A1 question, and you are a C3 man. Mrs. Edward had flashed a vindictive look at Lord Druid. Then, with a swift change of expression, she turned to Lady Druid. Perhaps now that Richard knows how, how it would pain you, Aunt Caroline, he won't. Don't be a fool, Cecily, snapped Lady Druid, whereat Edward Seymour had looked across at his wife with a leer of triumph. That night, as they had walked away from Druid House, Bearsford had explained more fully to Lord Druid what had led up to his decision to cut adrift from the old life. My dear Richard, he had said with a sigh of regret, I wish I had the aunt's courage and your convictions. Bearsford smiled the thought of that evening. He paused to light his pipe. He looked about him, hoping to find somewhere a break in the clouds giving promise of fine weather for the morrow. No, nature's frown showed no sign of lifting. It was as if she had decided never to attempt the drying up of this drenched and dripping landscape. He turned once more and faced the wind and rain. His thoughts returned to his family. He had always been something of a problem to them. As a standard by which to measure failure, he had been not without his uses. He had passed through Winchester and Oxford without attracting to himself particular attention, enviable or otherwise. He had missed his cricket blue through that miracle of misfortune, a glut of talent, and he had taken a moderately good degree. He had come down from Oxford in the clouds, loving sport, art, literature, and above all, beauty. Mrs. Edward Seymour had once remarked plaintively to Lady Druid that it seemed so odd that a man who had nearly got his cricket blue should be fond of roses and wallpapers, poetry and skylarks. It seemed, she ventured to add, not quite nice. Whereat Lady Druid had besought her not to be a fool, but to remember that the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. Mrs. Edward Seymour had gone away sorely puzzled as to her aunt's exact meaning, but not daring to inquire. Coming down from Oxford, Beresford had been shot unprotesting into the Foreign Office, which he had accepted as part of the enigma of life, until that fateful August 4th, 1914, when he had enlisted. That was four and a half years ago, and now, having thoroughly earned the disapproval of his aunt, he had turned his face to the open road, a vagabond but a free man. The blue sky would be above him, he had pictured it all, the white flecks of clouds swimming across the sun day by day, and the winking of the stars by night. There would be the apple and the plum blossom, the pear and the cherry. There would be the birds, the lowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep. Then there would be the voices of the haymakers, the throb of the mowing machines, and the rumble of the heavily laden wains as they grumbled their way to the rickyard. The night sounds, the sudden whirr of a frightened pheasant, the hoot of some marauding owl, the twitter of a dreaming thrush. He had realized them all, expected them all, everything but the rain. He had foreseen rain, it is true, the storm, 
the flood even, but it always presented themselves to his mind's eye with himself safely quartered in some comfortable old inn. Nature discourages eccentricity. Nature was discouraging him by flooding the earth on the first day of his adventure. I wonder what Aunt Caroline would say if she saw me now, he muttered. He laughed aloud at the thought. Suddenly he stopped, not only laughing, but walking, and stood staring in astonishment at a gate that lay a few yards back from the roadside. In an instant, Lady Drood, Nature, eccentricity, and the weather were banished from his thoughts. Nothing that his imagination was capable of suggesting could have caused him more astonishment than what he saw perched upon this gate, giving access to a wayside meadow. Had it been a griffin, a unicorn, or the seven-headed beast of the apocalypse, he would have accepted it without question as the natural phenomenon of an abnormal day. It was not a griffin, a unicorn, or the beast of the apocalypse that he saw, but a girl, perched jauntily upon the top bar of the roadside gate, meditatively smoking a cigarette. She seemed indifferent to the rain, indifferent to the wretchedness of her surroundings, indifferent to Beresford's presence, indifferent to everything. She was merely a spectator. For some seconds he regarded her in astonishment. The trim, grey, tailor-made costume, knapsack, tweed hat with waterproof covering, he mentally registered them all, but what struck him most was the girl's face. Nondescript but charming was his later verdict, but now his whole attention was arrested by her eyes, large and grey, with whites that were almost blue, and heavy dark lashes, they gazed at him gravely, wonderingly, but quite without any suggestion of curiosity. For nearly a minute he stood staring at her in astonishment. Then, suddenly realising the rudeness of his attitude, he slowly and reluctantly turned to the wind and continued his way. "'A rain-girl,' he muttered. "'I wonder if she knows that nature discourages eccentricity.' End of chapter 1